Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. So I've been out of it for a little while, thanks to a, a pretty nasty flu that, that that kept me from doing much for about two weeks. Um, but I did manage to have enough energy to reread Our Friends from Frolox 8. So that's the novel we're going to be uh, looking at now. Um, now, Our Friends from Frolox 8... Uh, was first published in 1970. It's it's one of two novels that that Dick wrote in or published in 1970, and it's it's a bit of a throwback. Um, I think it's not one of his his more well known or popular novels. I mean, it's not like often shows up like in the top ten sort of lists. Um, hasn't been dramatized in any way that I know of. Um, and it, it does if you look at his other work from the time period, like Galactic Pot Healer, Do Andrews Beam of Electric Sheep, Ubik. Um, the Maze of Death, and then the next novel that came after that, actually a, a number of years later, um, uh, what is it called? Um, Flow, Flow My Tears, the Policeman Said. I mean, this one seems to be pretty square, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a political dystopia. We've seen those before in Dick's earlier novels. It, we have a resistance movement. We have the question of can change come from within an institution or does it have to come from the outside? Um, so in that way, this novel is a bit of a throwback, and it's very much a novel of the 60s, I think. It's um, as much as Ubik is a novel of 60s consumerism and decadence, um, and as much as, um, you know, Galactic Hot Pot Healer is, is dealing with the anxieties of, of work and meaning in, in a Cold War environment, as much as those are novels of their time, Our Friends for Full Acts 8 is a novel of the 60s in the sense it's a, it's a novel about a movement culture. It's about a novel of resistance. It's also a novel in a way about the drug culture, which we'll talk about in, in interesting ways. It kind of uh, it gets thrown at us from, from the side, but we realize that this is also a novel of the, the drug culture. Um, but also, this is not a novel they could have written, I think, in in the 50s or 60, early 60s. It's, it's a novel that begins to actually have mystical and religious overtones, particularly in the theme of, of a savior coming from abroad, from outside of this world. This is something that's going to pick up again in The Divine Invasion. I think this novel does it better um, because it's not, it doesn't put all its eggs in one's basket, so to speak. There are movements from within institutions. There are movements from outside institutions. There are social movements. There's the everyman who gets fed up with the system. And alongside that, there is this question of, does help need to come from abroad? Um, now, if, if you've been reading along uh, chronologically by order of publication, it's actually been a bit of a while since Dix formed a really good political dystopia. There's been dystopian settings, obviously. Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep has it. Uh, most of his worlds aren't like, great places to, to live. Um, Galactic Pod Healer is probably the closest, but this is really a novel about a political system in a crisis trying to survive and, and what it does and what decisions are, are made. Um, and we get a really interesting interplay between two characters, both within in the state. And, and Dick uses the device of, of two types of post-humanism 
as a way to kind of reveal these these tensions. One thing I always like about Dick's dystopias are that they are, are complex. They're not dystopias that are singular the way Orwell's is, and even um, uh, to a lesser degree, like Huxley, the famous dystopias right of the 20th century. They're um, they're so singular and. There's not much room for resistance or change or conflict from within. They're pretty unitary. That's the thing. Um, but Dick's dystopias are never quite unitary. They're always fairly fragile. They're they're complex. They're they're bad places to live, but they're not like horrible. They're not, uh, you know, it's not. However, Orwell described it. You know, boot smashing the face for all time. That's not what he's after. He's after something realistic. Here. And I, I think so I, that's why I kind of like Dick's dystopias is because they are realistic. They're grounded in, in political realities, at least as much as you can cram it into his, his short, the short format that he usually writes in. And this is probably his best. I mean, we, we have the first half of Galactic Pot here, but that, that dystopian theme is thrown away. We have, then we have to kind of go back, all the way back to the novels like Solar Lottery and uh, The World Jones Made and The Man Who Japed for uh, Dr. Futurity and these for examples of, of really well-developed and fleshed-out dystopias. And if we remember from those, Vulcan's Hammer too, I don't want to forget that one. In those novels, the dystopia is always shattered or broken in some way, it's usually through the actions of, of someone from within the system, right? And that doesn't go away. Dick's still playing with his idea that change has to come from within systems, but he does something really different in this one than he compared to those other texts, and that's he looks at a resistance movement. He actually develops a movement culture and describes it for us. And this um, must have come from his experience of observing the movements of the 1960s. Um, uh, the, the close relationship between kind of a drug culture and, res and resistance, I think, may have come from Dick's own experiences and life and the world he saw around him. Uh, I know he had some acquaintances and, you know, people in his neighborhood were, were political radicals and he knew about them. And this was something that he lived with in the late 60s and 70s in, um, you know, and he was living in, where was it, Oakland, right? And he was involved in, in some marginal movements, right? But he was kind of in that context of, of political and, and social movements of the 60s and that really comes alive in this in this novel and i think this that makes this novel really one of his stronger um, novels of of the 1960s so um it's it's a fairly long novel for compared to some of the ones we just looked at it's it's 236 pages in the mariner edition so it's still fairly short all of dick's novels are, are short i think as longest is a scanner darkly which we'll, we'll look at shortly um, so, but even that capped on like 300 pages or so. So um, it's short. It's a, it's a quick read like all of his novels are. Um, it's broken up into 27 chapters. Um, it's, this one actually, unlike most of Dick's novels, has parts. It's, it's broken up into, into three parts um, that really kind of correspond with a three-act structure that we're, that we're used to from, from films and novels and things. So I'm not going to divide it up that way, though. I, I'm going to stick to how I've been dealing with these Philip Dick novels, usually about four episodes per per novel. So I'm gonna um, not not cling myself to the three-act uh, structure that Dick gives us here. <clears throat> so in this episode, I'll look at chapters one through one through eight. Um, um, so the first quarter or so of, of the story. Now what this part of the novel does is it really introduces us to our character, uh, Nick Appleton, who is 
the everyman, uh, his family life, his struggles, um, and then we're introduced, we're shown how he is brought into the into this political movement against the state. And then the other part, this, that ha- the other thing that happens early in the novels, we're given our description of the state and what this dystopia is all about. And essentially the question we need to ask is, how did the post-humans establish their control over this, over this society? Okay, so a bit of a background. This is set on, on Earth. Um, it's, it's an Earth that's not really in contact with other star systems and things, so it's just a, about humans. There are aliens. Uh, there is some awareness of life outside of the planet Earth, but it's a, it's really much about the fate of, of humanity. Uh, so what has happened is due to evolution uh, or posthumanism, you know, these are things Dick wrote about before, right? The, 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 the rival of mutations. We see we have two main groups of mutants emerging. One are called the new men. And these are people who, who usually have somewhat large brains. I don't know, they... They remind me a bit of like the Mentats or something from, from Dune. But they, they're able to perform complex cal- calculations. They're scientifically very, you know, have significant prowess. Um, and it's, I mean, they're in another league just intellectually in the way they can come up with ideas and things. And there's not that many of them, but they kind of form the ruling class. And they could share power with the other group of post-humans who are called the unusuals. And these are like your precogs. Your, your psychics and those people, right? Now, currently, when the novel takes, where the novel takes place, it's the unusuals who kind of rule the council, but it's kind of a power-sharing agreement between the new men and the unusuals. There's a lot of tension within the government between these two factions. They don't really fully get along. In fact, the new men have been working pretty hard to basically destroy the unusuals by using technology and developing technologies that will give basically everyone, or at least all the new men, uh, the, the same powers that, that the unusuals have. So the unusuals hold on power is, is at risk, and that's something that uh, our main unusual character that we meet, a man named Graham, William Graham, is, is dealing with. So, in fact, we got two characters in the government so we get, that we really focus on. One is William Graham, who is the unusual, and then the, the new man, Barnes, who's like the police detective, or the head of the, head of the secret police. So those are, then everyone else is called, sort of called the old men. The old men are the people who don't, aren't new men or unusuals. And that's the vast majority of humanity. It's something like, I think the number is given around 10,000 unusuals and new men on the planet, right, in the government. Now there are people who are new men kind of biologically, but they're not high enough level new men, so they can't really pass the, the exams. And and kind of enter into government. So there are a lot of kind of middle middle of the road new men, it seems, that um, except for all intents and purposes are old men because they haven't reached that that level. And that's that's the essential ruling order. And then we have um, a group called the, the Undermen. Now the Undermen are the kind of the social movement that's been organized to try to fight against this political system. So this is the the people speaking for the dignity of the common man, uh, the general basic equality, right? So that's the heart of the question here is, can we have a system, a political system based on equality in which some people have talents vastly superior to to the others, right? It's, it's, it's not like normal, you know, civil service exam, right? Where everyone can kind of know the rules, take the test and so to pass it. The civil service exam here is basically impossible for anyone who's not already an accomplished new man or a new man of a certain level to pass. 
So it basically blocks off any government service and social mobility to people. But uh, it's fair, right? We, we've actually seen this before in Dick's novels, like uh, was it the James P. Crow, where you actually there's robots who set up the civil service exam and, and say it's open. Humans can try to pass it, but no human is really capable of, of passing the the exam. Um, so that's that's the system we have. So we got the new men, the unusuals, or the ruling order. The old men are basically a general term for everyone else, and then you got the undermen. It's a fairly large social movement. We, we, at the time the novel begins, there are already millions of people in relocation camps for being parts of the undermen movement. So it's a, it's a vast uh, network of people. Now there's two major leaders of the undermen movement. One is um, Thoris Provoni. And he has sometime in the pre previously left Earth on a ship called the Great Dinosaur. It's a wonderful, meaningful name because dinosaurs, of course, being old, ancient, the throwbacks, just like the Undermen are the throwbacks. He's going off to look for help from aliens. So he's seeking out alien help for the Underman movement. And somehow he wants to bring an alien back or aliens back to and essentially betray humanity, but in doing so, hopefully uh, destroy the grip on power by the new men and the unusuals. And then you have uh, a man named Corden. Corden is the kind of the propagandist of the movement. And he's in jail, right? But he's still able to kind of, through a psychic implant in his brain or something, still write and get his message out to the publishers and the printers, which are spread throughout Earth. So um, there's a whole subplot about the distribution of Corden literature. So those are the two leaders of the movement. So they're in a sense leaderless in that one leader's gone, the other's in jail. But you nevertheless, you have this very broad network of, of the Undermen movement. So that's enough background, I think. Let's let's just jump into to chapter one. Now, a lot of chapter one is just kind of setting up this, this world, actually. Um, so we meet Nick Appleton and his son, Bobby Appleton, and they're set off to take the civil service exam. And that's kind of the precipitating event of the novel is Bobby's failure in the civil service exam. He, um, now Nick Appleton is a, is an old man, but it seems that Bobby in some way is a new man. He's got, you know, a very slight, you know, mental advantage. So he kind of qualifies as new man, but he still has to take these exams to, to see if he can kind of get into government or be fast tracked into, you know, the, the, the rises of power. So this is the way for social mobility. And Nick Appleton has kind of put all his marbles into this one, into his son and all his hopes and dreams into this into the sun. And then we get the description of the situation between the new men and the unusuals and the old men and the ruling order. So I think a distinctive characteristic here is the competition between the new men and the unusuals for authority and power in this in this system. Now while he's waiting for the the test to be administered to his son, he goes to a bar, a nearby bar. Now alcohol is illegal in, in this world, but there are you know pill pill bars. Uh, that you can take. So um, he has a short conversation with the bartender, and the bartender thinks the new men and the unusuals are basically a conspiracy, that their competition for power is just a facade. It's just a way for them to keep control. And Nick Appleton, who still at this point believes fully in, if he doesn't believe in the system, he at least thinks he has to have faith in the system that it will admire his son's talents and elevate him and in doing so kind of elevate his family and, and, and that. So really his only hope is his son and he, he ends up having to turn his back on on the, the bartender, right? And there's 
there's kind of a tension throughout the story about, about the whole about the whole story about the secret police, right? And and that if people are too open or vocal about their kind of old men sensibilities, or if they show open support for the the undermen, then they're likely to be dragged away very easily. And and we actually learn how complete the surveillance state is. The problem really isn't that they can't know, the government doesn't know, and can't keep track of where everyone is and what everyone's thinking and doing. The problem is really they don't have really the capacity to arrest everyone for every little bitty crime, right? This is the problem in any surveillance state, right? You you walk through city and you see thousands of cameras. How many of those cameras have someone actively behind them, right? They're just they're kind of um, not really being witnessed in any sense. Maybe there's a crisis, people go back and look at them, but, you know, it's... It's not like someone is spying on us, you know, through our through our computers. Even if it even if they could, right? Even if the NSA could look through our our cameras on our laptops, it's it's very unlikely that there's someone looking at, at me right now. I, I think you know, it'd be an incredible waste of resources. <clears throat> and that's a bit of the situation here too. And we learn more about that later on. Um, it, it is kind of funny though that that despite this being true, Nick on his first day of getting involved with the Undermen gets gets arrested. Um, now we get a really interesting look in chapter one as well at the kind of the low level of 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 the new men, and we see this character only shows up really the one time in the story. I think his name is Norbert Weiss, and he's basically a civil service officer. He's the one who's administering the test to Bobby, and he's kind of noticed that Bobby's taken the test before, and he's he's kind of okay, but you know, kind of a marginal figure, not really good enough, but. But, you know, maybe they should pass him. And then his boss says, just fail him outright. Just give him, like, the lowest grade. Just put him out of their misery, right? Because he's never going to enter into the, into the system. And we get this character, Norbert Weiss's background, about how he was one of these people who, who had these, what they call Roger nodes in their, in their brain, which is what gives the new men their, their enhanced mental capacity. So he's, he was better than a lot of the... The new men, or by a lot better than a lot of the old men intellectually, but he couldn't. He's not like a one of the great new men. He's not uh, capable of reaching the high levels of government. That's why he's working in the civil service office. But um, he's actually achieved a lot. I mean, by when we see he's, it seems he's got a PhD. He he published a paper on Zeno's paradox. Here, I'll just read it. Uh, in a widely distributed paper, he had presented objections to the classical theory of limits, showing in his own unique way a possible return, or at least theoretically, to Zeno's concept of progressively halved motion, utilizing as a fulcrum Grun's theory of circular time. And as a result of this, he held a minor post in a branch office of the government's Federal Bureau of Personnel Standards, because what he had done, although original, was not much, not compared to the advances made by the other new men. And I, I couldn't help but read this and think about the like the Chinese civil service exam in the imperial period, which only graduated a few hundred a year into the highest ranks of government. There were actually three levels of the test. Thousands passed the lower first level. You know, many less published passed the second level. And then the third level was passed just by a handful of people. And that meant a lot of really smart, brilliant people were, were rejected year after year when they took this exam. And this led to a lot of frustration. But it was the only way up, so people had to kind of go with the, the system. But it didn't matter how good you were, right? There's something almost, uh, as good as you are, there's someone a little bit better than you in, in, a, in a system like this. And so I, it's really interesting that Dick added this, this Norbert Weiss uh, side character, who we never really hear much about. Um, now, we also get a bit of the history of the new men here about how they're, 
you know, how in the 22nd century, early 22nd century, they started having the new men were being identified, the unusuals were being emerging at the same period of time, and then how kind of that history of, of how they got rated and graded and how they moved into power. Some of that's given in this, this chapter. It's not that important, but it's, it's, um, it's laid out. So Dick put some thought into this particular aspect on the novel, and I, I think that's to its credit. I, I do think that despite the new men and unusuals being, I guess, a bit unbelievable, it, it is one of the more believable dystopias that, that he's, he's written because it is, is fairly well thought out. Okay, chapter two, uh, we meet Cleo Appleton, and she's waiting for news on the on the on the results of the test. Now, uh, Dick's second wife was named Cleo, and actually the same initials. Uh, her second wife's name was Cleo Apostadelis. I think that's how it's pronounced. And here we have Cleo Appleton. So I don't know. Um, he divorced Cleo in '59 um, before marrying Anne. Uh, at this point, he was married to Nancy Hackett. His, his um, fourth wife. So, I don't know. Does he still have a... Is it about Cleo? Is it about his current wife? I don't know. It's, it's hard not to believe that he projects his own relationships into these uh, relationships that are in the, in the novels. So, we'll just, I'll just leave that out there and maybe someone who knows can, can let me know. So, um, she's basically just... Uh, watching the TV and she's doing a little bit of housework with uh, the Mr. Cleaner some some technology that is shared among her neighbors <clears throat> and um, a, a man arrives here's the key event in this chapter a man arrives named Darby Shire who is seeking a place to essentially hide he, he explains that he's in the political movement that he's one of these undermen and he's got literature with him and He's, you know, he's begging for a place to stay, and he he amount he says he's like an old friend of of Nick's or something, right? And at first she doesn't quite know what to do. She's her tendency though is to kind of do the right thing, which is to turn him away, to reject him, to to follow the rules. But as this is going on, Nick returns from this exam with Bobby, and so Bobby and Nick enter in the house, and then they talk a little bit with this man Shire, and eventually Nick kicks him out. And Nick gives his argument against the Undermen after their, their conversation. Now, it is a back-and-forth conversation, and I'm sure Nick here said things that would expose him as, to some degree, a, you know, not 100% politically correct. But at the end of the day, he, he, he says, you know, I cannot welcome you into my house. It's too dangerous. Quote, we have our freedom to lose. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Ruin your own life. Keep it to yourself and go away. And he kicks the man out. At this point, uh, Darby Shire reveals that he is actually a member of the secret police. And he was just doing a spot check on the Nick, Nick Appleton's home, right? And, and that Nick has passed. That him and his family have shown that they're loyal to the system, that they're not, going to, they're not part of the Underman movement. But interestingly, when he leaves, he leaves behind the literature. So there's a little bit of ambiguity here, whether he's actually working for the Undermen, maybe a little bit, because he does leave the literature, the, the literature is passing out behind. That could be fake literature, I suppose, just a prop for the investigation. But if you want to be realistic, you'd imagine it was real coordinate um, writing. Um, and, the, and also kind of interesting is that Nick tells Bobby to read it. 
at the um, at the end of the chapter to read the coordinate literature. So what we see here is the extent of surveillance that it goes even to the level of spot checks where the people try to entrap you into admitting your, your preference for the under underman movement or whatever. Now chapter three is a very short chapter. All that really happens is is they get the results from the exam that Bobby has has failed. And we see the first uh, major change in, in Nick's character and attitude. Quote, Nick said nothing, thought nothing. He was empty and numbed. A hand colder than that of death itself gripped his heart, killing off all emotion. And I think we find Nick really in these following chapters at the low point of his life. And this makes him susceptible to recruitment by, by the undermen, which is what happened. But in chapter four, we, we move away from, from Nick and, and meet up with our, 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 our kind of, a, our two windows, our two character windows into the, into the ruling class in this world. That is William Graham, who's council chairman of the, of the whole planet. He's an unusual, he's representing the, the high official, highest official in the unusual camp. They're the ones who kind of run the government now. And he's talking with the police detective Lloyd Barnes, and he's a, he's a new man. And, and they're basically talking about the, the, their major concern, which is Provoni, and if Provoni will come back from his mission, about Corden, who they have in jail, what to do with him. And, and that's, that's just essentially the conversation that they have. I really do love, though, the back and forth between these characters, because they have very different views about, about government. Uh, they both are capable of benevolence. Um, Barnes is a little bit crueler. Uh, William, a little more cynical and, 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 and practical. Um, but there's not close to lead to make decisions that, that seem to be good for the benefit of, of humanity as a whole. And then William Graham, Graham, who also seems very arbitrary and emotional. He's very personal. He takes a lot of things personal. He makes decisions based on his own anxieties and frustrations and wants and desires. Um, but he's a very likable character in that he is kind of a, a little bit warmer and he's capable of mercy to people he once knew. There's, there's a side plot that he, he once, early in, his, early in his career, he worked undercover in a printing office and he doesn't want to bomb that printing office because of his co-workers who were there. He, he would feel bad if, if they, were, they were killed. So, but I just love the back and forth of these characters and I think it's a high point, a, a highlight of the novel. Um, and it does show the ruling class here not unitary. It does show it as, as having internal debate. Um, essentially, it seems that Barnes realizes that a too hard of a approach um, will lead to growing support for the Underman movement. At the same time, though, he thinks on issues like the printing presses, publishing this literature, you know, that the state needs to take a hard line approach and be not so um, flexible. Um, and there's a lot of nuance in both of their perspectives on, on what to do. The issue at hand, though, is with this fear that Provoni is going to come back. Now, by, by the way, at the time, they're advertising that Provoni's lost out there, that he's not coming back. But they, they know he might come back, and they're fearful of this. And so the decision is maybe we need to kill Corden, who's in jail, just execute him. He says, we must destroy Eric Corden. This is Graham. We must destroy Eric Corden. It's as follows. Why we must destroy your coordinates as follows. Corden is a link between the old men of Earth and Thor's Provoni. As long as Corden is alive, people feel the presence of Provoni. Without Corden, they'll have no contact, real or otherwise, with that ratty space bastard out there somewhere. 
In a sense, Corden is a voice for Pavoni while Pavoni is gone. I admit that this might backfire, the old men might riot for a time, but on the other hand, this might bring the undermen out of hiding where we can get to them. While making his decision, Graham calls Corden in jail, basically has a nice pleasant conversation with him, and then turns and says, we are basically moving you to another facility where you'll be executed. I'll let you know when you'll have 24 hours notice or something. Um, and then for the rest of the chapter, we're, we're given an insight into Graham's personal problems and essentially he's having divorce trouble. And this is a plot that gets dropped in the novel um, after the first half. And it's, it's kind of an interesting subplot. We'll talk a little bit more about it in this episode. I think this episode or maybe, maybe it's actually in the next episode we have to get to it. <clears throat> But uh, he's divorcing his wife, but it's going to be a big scandal, and he's going to have to pay a lot of alimony. He doesn't want to, and he doesn't quite know how to deal with this without making kind of scandal of his divorce worse. And he basically says that he'll, he'll, he'll resign before he signs the alimony agreement that his wife is demanding. And I think what we learn here, both in the conversation with Barnes and with Graham, is that these unusuals and New men are really much obsessed with public perception and opinion, and they see that as key to their, their power, and, and that a lot of the fragility in the system comes from the fact that, that they do rely so much on the vast majority of people accepting the system as it is. And so anything like killing Corden or a, a scandalous divorce or the return of Provoni, any of these things can be a disruption to this very carefully balanced system that they've, they've created. Now, um, if Graham doesn't have enough troubles on his mind, he, he's, we're told about something else that's bothering him, and that is the Great Ear Experiment. The Great Ear Experiment is something developed, being developed by new men, which essentially will undermine the power of unusuals by giving everyone the capacity to, or at least anyone who has access to the device, who I assume would be just the, the new men, the capacity to telepathically monitor People. They basically automate the jobs of the unusuals. So it's kind of fascinating because we do have a post-scarcity economy here where automation has taken away quite a few of the jobs. And, um, and that's kind of common in Dick's novels, of course. But, you know, here we have the threat that even the ruling class is going to be automated away because the great ear will be able to just read the minds of all the people. And you won't need the unusuals to read minds anymore. And then the fear is after that, once they develop that, they'll develop the precog version of the great ear. And then there'll be no jobs for the unusuals. They'll lose their position of power. And so he's got to worry about this. Now, the person developing this experiment is, is one of the top new men called um, Amos Ild. And, and we're going to meet him later on in the story, uh, in the, in the, probably in the final two episodes. And he's kind of an interesting character. But he's is the, the top new man who's working on this, this project and the biggest internal threat to, to Graham and... And, and the entire system that he's part of. So chapter four, a very important chapter in laying out the, these characters and the, the, the challenges they're facing. Well, we, uh, chapter five, we quickly go back to our, our good friend, our everyman, Nick Appleton. And he's, he's got one of the most bizarre jobs in Dick's fiction. He's a, he's a tire regroover for squibs. So squibs are the, you know, just the little flying cars that, that populate these novels. Um, so they don't really need tires to put on their landing, right? So 
Now, I don't know if this was a real thing. I, I'm assuming it was a real thing in in the 70s, 60s and 70s, you know, which must have been really dangerous before, you know, the improvements in entire technology. It's essentially what you would, radials and all that. But what you essentially would do is, if a tire was being worn down, is you just, and you didn't want to be pulled over by the police and forced to buy entirely new tires, is you take them to a tire regroover and they would basically cut new, new trenches or new grooves in your tire to make it look new, right? Of course, if you do it too many times, you know, you're going to end up with a tire that's very easily going to break, uh, to pop, and that, that, of course, could be very dangerous. So it's obviously illegal, um, or should be illegal, and that's just an issue that comes up in the story later on. <clears throat> so that's what he's doing now. He, his boss, he runs like the like the used car, the used squib lot, or the repair shop, or whatever, and his name is Earl Zeta. And they're working, and they get the news that Corden will be executed. And this triggers Earl Zeta, and it kind of reveals to Nick. Now, Nick didn't know this before, but it reveals to him that Nick seems to be a, or that Earl seems to be a, an underman, or at least sympathetic to the underman movement. And Earl begins to talk to Nick about the underman movement, and decides to invite him over for a an illegal beer. Beer is illegal. Um, any alcohol is illegal. And there's kind of a running joke here about you know people sharing one beer covertly or you know drinking a third of the beer and being worried about being drunk because um you know beer or alcohol has been built up as the great enemy meanwhile you can go to a bar and get barbiturates and any kinds of speed and, and those kinds of drugs legally but but a little bit of beer is considered dangerous and will make you violent and horrible um, I don't know if Dick had some experience with alcohol when he wrote this. Again, I, I'm always a believer that Dick's personal experiences are in some way being thrust onto the page. But anyways, that's all that happens in chapter chapter 5. It's a relatively short one. Um, chapter 6 is, is, is um, much longer and more significant. In this chapter, they're sharing this beer, and they, they talk about various things. They talk about the underdog movement. They also talk about wives. Um, and we get some wonderful anti-woman stuff. Well, wonderful. I don't know if I'd say it that way. But typical Philip Dickian um, misogyny coming through here. Um, you know, they're basically complaining about their wives. And Zeta says, because their husband is a source of all their financial money. To them, well, look at it this way. Suppose you had a machine, a very complex, delicate machine, out of which, when it was working, properly pumped out... Uh, line of pops. Now, supposing this machine, and then Nick says, is that really how wives feel about their husbands? And so he says, sure. And Nick says, um, you know, Nick tries to explain the way Cleo is kind of clingy and, and obsessive and, and paranoid all the time from, from different reasons because she lost her father and stuff like that. But, you know, Earl Zeta is a straight up misogynist. And, uh, you know, you got two guys talking about wives over a beer. It's a you know, working class folks. Pretty uh, conventional story. But it, this kind of veers into a, a more detailed discussion of the Underman movement, uh, coordinate material, and, and all that. And um, we actually get the line thrown out in vino veritas. They're not drinking that much, right? But um, they're not drinking much, but there is a risk, right? If they get caught drinking, they'll get like a year in a prison camp. And, and you know, this still ties to the conversation they're having about wives because, you know, what will be the impact of the family if, these get, if you get arrested as an underman or an alcoholic or whatever? Um, but 
Earl Zeta kind of tosses it aside saying, you know, there's so many people that read coordinate material. There's so many people who drink from time to time. It's not the end of the world that you have one drink, right? I suppose that's kind of how the drug culture was looked at in the 60s too, right? Like, yeah, this stuff is illegal, but, you know, one joint isn't going to get you arrested or, or ruin your life, right? This is before the war on drugs, of course. I, I wonder if Dick was writing after the war on drugs, do you have different views of this, you know, where really one joint can destroy your life. Um, that is basically trying to encourage Nick to relax a bit, and maybe he's been too influenced by his wife's paranoia and anxiety, basically giving him the everyone's doing it argument, at least about coordinate literature. So, you know, everyone reads this stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of good for you. So he says, I'm going to take you out and we're going to get some. Now, this is where the novel gets kind of fascinating and bizarre almost because this whole scene reads like a drug deal. Uh, really, they're going to this secret house that only Earl Zeta knows about because he has a connect. He has a connection. Goes to this house and in the house is a shady guy named Denny with his young 16, 16-year-old beautiful uh, girlfriend. She's named Charlie. She'll be in, she'll be an important character. In fact, we should get her description out of the way. <clears throat> She's the, you know, every one of these books has the young woman, the young girl. Here it's Charlie. Quote, the door opened. A girl stood confronting him, a small, black-haired girl, pretty in an odd, tough way. She had a pug nose, sensual lips, elegantly formed cheekbones. About her hung a glow of feminine magic. Nick caught it right away. Her smile, he thought, it lights up. It illuminates her whole face, bringing it to life. Now, Zeta doesn't care much about Charlie. He wants Denny, who's the, the pusher of this coordinate material. <clears throat> and this is that's what it is. They actually get so, you know, the, the way they even talk about selling the coordinate material is, is the language such as, you know, do you want the $5 hit or the, or the, the $0.05 cent hit or the $0.10 cent hit, right, for $5 or, or $10? They talk in that same kind of coded language. You know, they're, they're, it's presented as they're quick consumables, right? You get a quick high reading the coordinate material, and then you have to get another hit. You come back. Right, I, all the language here—it just sounds like a, a drug dealer. Um, now, Demi, Denny, who's drunk, what well, during this transaction, and they get some of the coordinate material. In fact, Earl Zeta buys the cheap five-dollar version because he doesn't want to spend more on, on Nick yet. Um, but Denny, who's drunk at the time, starts beating up Charlie. Zeta holds back. Uh, Holds back Denny. Nick is able to escape with Charlie. Now, we actually don't see Earl Zeta again in the story. He's just here to sort of introduce Nick into the into the movement. We don't really quite know. Seems, I think we don't know what happens to him. I didn't catch uh, his fate when I reread this. It doesn't really matter, but he's able to fight off this drunken Denny while Charlie gets away. <clears throat> and they leave, and Zeta eventually is able to follow them in the squib. And so they're running, they're, they're kind of got a little car chase here. And, but Charlie and Nick get away. Charlie thinks he'll be fine, that eventually he will relax, he'll calm down, and she'll be able to go back home, but she's going to need a place to stay for a few days. And being part of the movement, she can't just stay anywhere. And the decision is basically, the only place they can go is back to Nick's house and, and hang out there for, for a couple days till Denny calms down and Charlie can go back to her her bad boyfriend, bad coordinate literature pushing uh, boyfriend. So it's, it's a fairly long chapter, chapter six, and a lot goes on. But I think the heart of it is this bizarre uh, 
scene where they're trying to buy this literature and it really does just come off with like, like a drug deal in every single single way um, you know everything going to the weird house having the shifty individual as the salesperson the, the negotiation the the kind of the different entry level amount and the, and the higher level the description of different amount like the type of literature there's for more advanced users there's different books it's um wonderful unfortunately we don't get too much about this actually literature we get a few titles but we don't really know what he's saying it it seems mostly it's about the common brotherhood of of mankind um and, and about equality which is always you know i'm a fan of enlightenment so enlightenment writers so i like that stuff too i don't know if i, I mean it's like a drug um hit but in a, in a world like this maybe it is maybe it's it's forbidden it's 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 banned it's not the kind of argument people normally get in their everyday life so it, it does become an addictive thing um, but this does open up the question and it's important for the movement culture as described in this novel is to what degree is this just a business a way of making money off the selling of this literature and to what degree is it a real movement right there's doubts whether denny or even you know charlie seems to be a believer in the undermint movement but denny maybe not so much and he seems to be just doing it as a job Okay, chapter seven. Um, chapter seven is um, kind of a philosophical conversation. It's just a continuing of the last scene where Charlie and Nick are kind of deciding where to go, um, and they they end up they enter into a, a discussion of philosophy that kind of comes down to the question of like what what comes first, the movement or or the individual. That is, you know. Not like the, I don't mean like the chicken and egg problem. I mean, what comes first to one's loyalty? Do you fight for every individual, or are there expendable individuals in in a social movement like this? Is is the cause more important? That's what I should say. Is the cause more important than than the individual, like someone like Corden, even someone like Corden? Are they expendable for the movement or or something? And and um, Nick seems to believe an individual is more important than than the, the theory and into kind of a theoretical movement or an idea. And, and Charlie says, well, you're not hooked yet on it. Again, the language of, of addiction uh, in re reference to this literature is, is used here. Um, so Nick is not uh, really into the movement yet. He's, he's kind of almost in the movement by accident and he never actually gets fully converted. His conversion, if, if it takes place, is really through his experiences. And I think that's an interesting way to talk about movement cultures, right? I mean, I'm sure there are people who pick up like a, you know, Karl Marx and read it and, and then become a communist, right? But a lot of people historically got into the movement first through labor unions or through their, you know, their allies and other movements, associated movements, and then they kind of moved into the theoretical side, right? Organization seems to come first, right? And there's a a book about the Chinese Communist Party by a man named Arif Derlich, who, who died last year, unfortunately, a great historian. And he kind of makes this argument that the, the movement came uh, before the ideology in the case of Chinese communism. And they, they really formed a party first before they really knew what they were forming a party about. Um, they, they had some loose ideas about revolution and, and Lenin and the communist revolution in Russia and all that, but it was kind of a movement without ideas. And the, the movement itself then created the ideas. At least that's how I understand his text. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. Nick's kind of someone who gets into the movement through, through accident and through circumstance. Now, Nick, you know, is, I mean, like, how can we, where can we go? We need to throw out this literature. 
and you know they eventually decide the only place they can go is to Nick's house. So they they move they go on their way to Nick's house. Um, now there is an interesting conversation here about God, and there's a, um, apparently they found this body out in space near Alpha Centauri, which is the remains of an organism several thousand times more advanced than humans, and this is like the body of God, or a lot of people interpret this to be the body of God. It seems to be a still an open question. Um, Nick seems to think it was God. Charlie has doubts that, that God could be anything that's limited uh, into the material form. But a common idea on Earth at this time is that this creature is, is God. All right, um, then chapter eight. That's the last one I'm going to look at. Um, now, I, talk, I mentioned before that there's, uh, in this novel, it seems that there's a very well-developed surveillance state, that the state is capable of knowing everything. And maybe it's bad luck on, for, for Nick, maybe it's just convenience for the story, but Barnes gets a notice of Nick's conversion to, to the under. Maybe it was because they just did a spot check on him and they were keeping an eye on him. Maybe this kind of notice comes all the time whenever someone joins the movement. But the fact that Nick has been converted to the Undermen movement, and from the state's perspective, he's a full convert um, because he went to this house. The house, so he actually takes on the name 3XX24J, which is the name of the address of the house where he um, was converted to the Undermen movement, right? The Denny's house. So his, his actual address isn't his name anymore or isn't his identification anymore. Now, Barnes then has this question. He doesn't care so much about Nick. He doesn't want to necessarily throw the book at Nick. Specifically, he wants to know why is it that on this day, at this moment, this one person converted to the Underman movement, and what this could this be extrapolated then to other people? Could this be the sign that there's going to be a change in support for the movement? What caused it? Was it the news that... They were going to kill Corden, execute Corden, that started to convert people. And is Nick just the first of many? And so that's the question he has as kind of the police, head of the police. Um, so he goes and takes this stuff to, to Graham, his concerns about this, to, to Graham. And essentially he's going to want to, for much of the novel, he's going to want to pull Nick out and basically ask him, find out from Nick's own mouth, why did he join the Underman movement, in order to create a policy then that will keep people from joining the movement in the future. Um, so even though Barnes is pretty hard-headed and, and brutal when he needs to be, uh, he's understanding that the state needs to maybe give and, and be flexible and understand why people join the movement. It's, you can't just bop every head, you know, it's not like a game of whack-a-mole. And then um, we switch to Graham again, and these chapters always flip between Barnes and Graham, and it's, it's a lot of fun. So Graham has this very elaborate plan. Again, this is a plot that's dropped um, for various reasons. And I'll talk about that in the next episode. But Graham has this plan to take care of his marital problems and Corden at the same time. Because he realizes just straight up executing Corden might look bad um, and, and lead people to the underman movement. So he kind of takes Barnes's concerns seriously here. But he's got his own plan going on, which is going to solve this. And essentially, it is to kill Barn or to kill Corden replace him with a robot that looks just like him, that acts like him, and then have the robot during some public execution grab a gun, you know, from one of the police, shoot Graham's wife, basically shoot the first lady, 
Um, and then, then this will lead then the police to to shoot uh, Corden, and everyone will say, "We'll cheer because it'll be you know you've stopped this assassin." And it will, so it'll do a couple things. It'll get rid of his marital problems, primarily. It will discredit Corden and the Cordonite movement. It will, you know, it'll give them cover for killing Corden, so it won't look like they're just brutal tyrants. It would do all these kind of things. And this uh, really inspires Graham. He's really into this. this. And he talks about it with, with Barnes and others, and they work out revisions of the plan. And he actually calls this Operation Barabbas, Barabbas being the, you know, the wrong man who was or about executing the wrong man, right? <clears throat> so that's where, that's where our name comes from. Now, this is all dropped because other things are going to lead to them forcing their hand in regards to Corden. They're not going to be able to develop it. But it shows you how creative uh, this character Graham is. And it's it's not the kind of thing a new man who looks at everything scientifically and rationally would think of. It's, it's almost like we learn something about the unusual's mind and, and just how creative they can be. I, 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 I love this chapter because it it does show this contrast between the very practical Barnes and this kind of emotionally almost nutty character, William Graham, who's essentially the president of, of this, this society. Um, now, unfortunately, we don't get to see this scheme. I, it would be a great short story if, if Dick would have written a short story about this, where um, a president tries to get a, a political prisoner to execute his his wife assassinate his wife for him in a public forum and solve all his problems at once it's just it's a great idea uh too bad we don't get to see it um so that's going to be it for my first episode my first thoughts on our friends from Forlox eight uh thanks as always for listening if you've read this novel um you know let me know what you think if you haven't read it i i do recommend it it's it's not one of his most well-known novels but it has a lot to offer us i think so read our friends from Fullbox 8 um, and let me know what you think of it, especially the first eight chapters or so. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters 9 through, you know, through, through 16. So we'll get to about the halfway point, a little bit past the halfway point in the story in the next episode. And we'll see what happens. Uh, where does Nick go with Charlie? How does going to their house with this young girl? You know, how does Cleo handle this? Um, what happens with Provoni and all this. We're going to learn about that in the next episode. So thanks as always for listening. Um, so let me know what you think. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I will see you next time with part two of my thoughts on our friends from Full Life. To feel these changes happening in